Well, it's an honor and privilege to be with you all this morning as we jump into part two of our teaching series, Christmas Through Their Eyes. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor, and it's good to have you guys here. This is kind of our Christmas series as we enter this season looking at the Christmas narrative but looking at certain characters within that narrative and trying to really understand what did Christmas look like through their eyes? What was their experience? Because we're 2,000 years removed from that experience. We have the story. They didn't have the story. The story was unfolding before their eyes. So what we want to do is go back 2,000 years, jump into a couple of the characters that were in the story, and try to figure out what was it like for them to know that Jesus Christ came, the Messiah, the one who would bring us back into relationship with the Heavenly Father, the Creator God. Last week, Pastor Brandon brought part one to you all, and we looked at shepherds. I think it was really cool that God of all things chose to go to the shepherd and reveal that, hey, Jesus is going to be born. The shepherds were the outcasts of society. They were the dirty individuals. They were looked down upon, and it was Jesus' message through angels that says, listen, I'm going to go to the outcasts of society to bring my message, because how many of us know that Jesus reaches all races, all demographics of people, the rich, the wealthy, to the poor, and the outcasts of society? Jesus is for everyone. And so he came to the angels, or the angels came to the shepherds to announce this good news. Now, we're going to look at another character that perhaps is honestly one of my favorite because he's a whack job, honestly. Fully, to, we'll understand why here in a little bit. But we want to jump into the Christmas narrative. And uh, let me tell you that the Bible's divided up into an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testament is the latter thirds of your Bible. It begins by, by four guys. They're known as, what we call them, is, it's the Gospels. The Gospels write about the life and ministry of Jesus. Then the rest of the New Testament are letters to either churches or pastors. But you get these four guys immediately as you turn into the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are a gospel writer that writes about the life and ministry of Jesus. But only two of those include the birth narrative of Jesus. That is found in Matthew and Luke. Although all the other writers, Matthew star, or Mark starts off his gospel with Jesus' baptism. He's like, I'm not going to deal with the baby Jesus. We're going straight to his baptism and ministry. I mean, Mark is fast-paced throughout his gospel. But uh, John starts with some deep theology of Jesus and then the ministry of Jesus. But Matthew and Luke decided we're going to include the, what we would consider the Christmas story, the, biblical narr the Christmas narrative into our gospels. Last week, if you notice, Pastor Brandon bought, brought you that message from Luke. This week, we're going to jump in Matthew to see his side of the Christmas story together. And then we're going to look at a character together and understand who exactly is this character. Why is he in the story? And why does he act and behave the way he does? So, Matthew chapter 2, let's jump into the Christmas narrative, and we're only going to get to verse 1 right now. Here's how Matthew says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which last week you learned, 
It's also the city of David, same, another nickname. In Judea, which is kind of the region, uh, today we would call it maybe the county at that time. During the time of who? Who is at the time of? King Herod. So welcome to King Herod, a.k.a. Herod the Great. We are told immediately that there is a king on the throne when the time that Jesus was born. Question, why is there a king? I thought the kings were done in the Old Testament. You are correct. But guess who's ruling the entire ancient world at this time? The Romans. And the Romans have a way of appointing kings to region that we'll talk about. I'm going to take you, because my minor in college was history, and I love history, and I know some of you love history, and others of you are going to boo history. You hated history class. I was explaining to my kids as I was going to school, they're like, Dad, you're a nerd. And I said, I know, I will gladly wear that. And they said, history is so boring. I said, are you kidding me? It was my minor in college. History is not boring. So I'm going to take you into history because what history is going to teach us is who this character is. And we're going to understand because of history why he reacts the way he does. So I'm going to take you into two different uh, timelines. I'm going to take you down a timeline to understand why he is King Herod, why he's on the throne. And then I'm going to show you a couple things what King Herod did. And then we're going to jump back into Matthew chapter 2 and finish the entire Christmas narrative. So I'm going to ask you, you non-historians, hang in there with me. Okay? Hang in there. And it's going to make sense. Again, we look at a beach, and it's beautiful, and that's the way we look at the Christmas narrative. It's a beautiful narrative, but we're going to go scuba diving today, if that's all right with you. So here we go. Let me show you a, time, a quick timeline of Herod the Great. Again, the Roman Empire is ruling the ancient world, and there is a king, King Herod, on the throne at the time of Jesus' birth. So real quickly, in 130 B.C., Antipater I converts to Judaism. He becomes a Jew, and he becomes the governor of Idumea. This is Herod's grandfather. Herod's grandfather converts and becomes a Jew. He's given a certain territory to govern now. Here's a map of ancient Israel, and it says he is the governor of Idumea, which is like the bottom of Israel. So, Antipater I, Herod's grandpa, becomes governor. He becomes a Jew, and he's allowed to control the bottom part of Israel. Then, and we're not exactly sure when, but sometime after 130, Antipater II, they weren't very clever with names back then. They just, let's just keep naming it after ourselves, which is Herod's father succeeds Antipater I, Herod's grandpa, as governor. So grandpa was ruling. Now Herod's dad is ruling. The same region, Idumea. Then in 73 BC, Herod, who's in our story, Herod the Great, King Herod, is actually born to Antipater II in Cyprus. So now in 73 BC, Herod, the Herod that is in our Christmas narrative, is finally born with his dad reigning as governor of Edomia. In 63 BC, Pompey conquers Israel for Rome and Antipater II supports. Why not? You just got conquered by Rome. 
So Herod's dad's like, yeah, I support you guys. Go ahead, rule. I'll just follow you now. You're the ruler. I'm not going to uprise against you. So now Rome has occupation of, of what we know as Israel. So his dad says, yep, you do what you need to do. In 48 B.C., Julius Caesar appoints Antipater II as governor of Judea. So now Herod's dad is gaining territory in the ancient land. Not only is he governor of Idumea, but he's progressively moving up north. And now Julius Caesar says, you are now governor of Judea as well. So the territory is expanding for Herod's dad. Then in 47 BC, Antipater II appoints Herod as governor of Galilee. So now the family is starting to rule a little bit more. So dad is controlling the south. Herod, in our story, controls the north. So it's a family governor business right now. They're just beginning to take over present-day Israel and that territory. How do we govern this? In 41 BC, Mark Antony elevates Herod's power in Galilee. So he says, Herod, I like the way you're ruling. Uh, I'm going to elevate your power. Begin to start controlling a little bit more of the Galilee region. Start to spread your power and authority a little bit. And of course, Herod the Great says, you got it, Rome. Whatever you want, I'll do, because your empire is real big and mine is real small right now. And then in 40 BC, the Parthians invade Jerusalem and Herod flees to Rome. This is the moment that everything turns for the character in our story, Herod the Great. I want to show you a map of the Roman Empire. This is the Roman Empire. What is red uh, is what they had conquered. Obviously, the white is where they're from. And then they would eventually take over all the orange and, and yellowish color. The Roman Empire was taking over the entire ancient world. And to the bane of the existence of the Romans were a group known as the Parthians who were over from Parthia. They were the bane of existence for the Romans. Why? Because if you look where Israel is right here, Israel is the land bridge to Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. It's the land bridge to Asia Minor and Egypt. All trade by land goes through Israel. So who wants that territory? Rome? But the Parthians want it too. And Rome is sitting there going, we must destroy the Parthians. The Parthians have come in, and now they're controlling Jerusalem. And it annoyed them. So what happens is, as Herod the Great was ruling here, and his authority got greater, he wanted to rule in Jerusalem. The Parthians come in, and the guy by the name of Antigonus from the Parthians sit there and go, hey, uh, Herod, how about you bow to my authority? I'm ruling Jerusalem. We're going to take over Israel. And Herod goes, yeah, sounds good. But no, I'm loyal to Rome. And in the middle of the night, Herod the Great flees Jerusalem. He gets out of Dodge in the middle of the night. He's like, "Uh uh-uh, this Antigonus, these Parthians, no. And I got to make it to Rome. He leaves in the middle of the night in Jerusalem, gets eight miles away. And Antigonus gets woken up by his servants and says, hey, Herod's on the run. Antigonus says, "Uh uh-uh. 
So he gets in his chariots and chases Herod the Great. They get eight miles away, eight miles south of Jerusalem. And you know what happens? Herod's mother is riding in a chariot. Her chariot flips over. Herod thinks his mom is dead. She's just there unconscious. And Herod is going to go commit suicide. His servants get to him and say, no, 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 don't do that. Your mom is just unconscious. There was a bloodbath about eight miles south of Jerusalem where Herod the Great and his servants fought off Antigonus and the Parthians right there. And Herod escaped by the chinny-chin-chin and escaped to Rome. He gets before the Roman Senate. He gets there and says before the Roman Senate, hey, Antigonus and the Parthians are controlling it. I can't do it. And the Romans sit there and go, we can't stand the Parthians. So you know what they said? They said, go back. What we must do is appoint a king on the throne in Israel. And you, Herod, will be known as king of the Jews. Who else was called the king of the Jews? Jesus. So Herod comes back with the support of Rome, sitting there going, all right, I'm going to puff my chest up a little bit. I am king of this region. Tactus, the Roman um, historian, says this. It was an old and long-standing principle of Roman policy to employ kings among the instruments of servitude. So as the Roman Empire spread and as they conquered territory, territory, they would appoint king there, king there, king there, king there to sit there and go, we are ruling the ancient world. And King Herod gets appointed king in 40 B.C. by the Roman Senate. Herod, you are now king of the Jews. And you already know there's going to be conflict when the king of the Jews is about ready to be born. So Herod's here, controlling Galilee. It was still his territory, even though the Parthians came in and controlled Jerusalem. And he terrorized from the north to the south, taking control of everything. Herod the Great was an incredible athlete. He's a man's man. He would have played Michigan football right there. That man. <laughs> just strong. I mean, he was known for his physical strength, his ability to look like a dude. I mean, if you will, that's what he looked like. Herod the Great was known for incredible military intelligence. Herod the Great was a very, very smart man. He was extremely strategic as well. He knew how to now, after the authority has been presented on him to be king of the Jews, he knew, I know how to get Parthian, the Parthians out of Jerusalem now. And so he's got a little more pep to his step. But here was the problem. He was brutal and ruthless. He did what he wanted in order to control everything that he needed to do. He did not care if it was men, women, or children. He would murder you if you were in his way. And 37 BC, finally King Herod had worked his way from Galilee into Jerusalem and took control of Jerusalem. And now he sits on the throne as king of the Jews in 37 BC. Welcome to King Herod. Christmas through the eyes of the so-called king of the Jews. Now Herod wasn't done. Herod's like, I like this title. But Herod wanted to leave an impression on the world of who he was. So you know what Herod did? He went out and said, you know what? I'm going to increase 
my name in the ancient land of Israel, I'm going to do building projects everywhere. That's what I'm just going to do, building projects everywhere that will have my name. So quickly, and then we'll get into the Christmas story, I want to take you to three building sites. These are incredible sites that King Herod built. Why? He wanted a name for himself. So, welcome to Masada first, the desert fortress. Masada sat on the south end of the Dead Sea. Why does King Herod build this desert fortress? Because everyone in Israel hated him and he knew it. So if ever there was a time to revolt against him, he had a place to flee in the desert. No one wants to live in the desert. So he had a place to flee in case revolt happens. Here's uh, aerial footage of Masada, which is this big honker over here. Masada was massive. It was 13,000 feet above sea level. He built that there when there was no other places to get water. This is a ramp that the Romans would eventually try to raid during the Maccabean Revolt. They built that ramp there in order to try to get on top. That is massive, isn't it, friends? And you're going to build a palace, a tiered palace, by the way, where his living quarters, a guest house, and a banquet hall was. Remember, why is he building here? And Kate, because you all hate him. This is playing music, really weird. <laughs> and that's why. And so he built this. There are store, if you see these long lines, and I'm sure you'll see it in a minute, but look at that. That's the Dead Sea. I, I, six years ago, I was able to walk this land and walk up on Masada. One of my top three sites of all of Israel is Masada. It is so impressive. You see these rows right here. Those are storerooms. King Herod brought in the finest, most expensive wine from Italy. He brought in the most beautiful spices from Spain and stored them here in Masada. Why? In case you all revolted against him. He's got a place to flee. Oh, by the way, this is so beautiful that um, in Masada, I I'm going to tell you, I walked that trail right there. My, that, that's their thigh master right there, man. My thighs were burning. Burning. These are the storerooms. He has a massive swimming pool. Freshwater swimming pool up there. 1,300 feet above sea level in the ancient world. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But the f rain only came a few times a year. And it rained one to two inches in Masada. That's it. A year. How do you get fresh water to this ginormous desert fortress? You rearrange the landscape in order to collect uh, what, what is known as flash floods. Pastor Brandon talked to you about flash floods last, uh, last week. That he collected it in order to get it. This, um, man, it's so beautiful when you get up there. Let me show you. This is an ancient drawing, a picture of what his fortress would have looked like. But you see the tiered system there. You see the storehouses and just the lush gardens. I mean, he sit there. He didn't spend a lot of time here. Again, the main reason, in case you revolted against him. King Herod brought in uh, what's known as fresco. Right here, you see it down low. He brought that into the ancient world. He brought in mosaic. He brought that into the ancient world, and these are still, this is some of my pictures that I took when I was there. Um, he st still preserved beautifully. 
But this is his pool he had on top that he would have his servants some way, somehow rearrange the landscape to get fresh water. I want to show you how big this pool is. This pool is 60 feet across, 50 feet wide, and 8 feet in depth in a place that only rains 1 to 2 inches a year. Wow. He is a master planner and builder. Rearrange the landscape in order to have collect flash floods to fill my swimming pool. Crazy man. Let me show you second place, Caesarea. This is Caesarea Maritime. There's Caesarea Philippi. But anyone see the word Caesar in this name of the city? Herod was a brown noser. There was no good port city at the time. And Herod said, I, I, I want Rome to continue to like me. I'm going to build a port city that will be magnificent and name it after Caesar. And so here's where Caesarea Maritime actually lies on the northern side of this is the Mediterranean Sea. And here's what it looks like today, an aerial foot um, shot. You have this would have been his palace in the ancient world. You have a theater here. You have a hippodrome right here for chariot races, for sporting events. And then you can see the outcropping of the actual port. Now, here's the artist's rendition of what it would have looked like. This theater right here still stands today. 4,000-seat capacity. It is still, that's how good Herod built things that are still intact today. In fact, it is so well built that they actually still do live events there using it. Because they're like, wow, Herod, you did a good job. Mm -hmm. So we'll keep using it. Not only that, but you begin to see his palace. As I was walking my way to this palace, you still see a lot of the columns of his palace. But I just showed you the swimming pool at Masada. Herod had a thing for swimming pools. This is his swimming pool at Caesarea Maritime on the Mediterranean Sea, which is salt water, but he doesn't like salt water. He wants fresh water. This is a 115 feet in length swimming pool. This pool was massive. It was a, look at this, it was a two-tiered swimming pool. Who does that? Herod the Great. Why? He's making a name for himself. He is the king of the Jews and he knows no one likes me. The Jews don't like me because in order to fund all this, what is he doing? He is taxing the snot out of all y'all to fund his projects. And he's like, I'm going to live it up. So it's a two-tiered swimming pool. And uh, I'll, I'll show you. Uh, well, let me go back. You see the hippodrome that he built? The 107-second Olympics was funded by King Herod. The Olympics would not have existed. It almost went out of existence because King Herod showed up. And they're like, we don't have funding anymore. And he's like, don't worry. I taxed all the Jews. I'll fund your Olympics. Remember, he was an incredible athlete. He loved sporting events. So he built the Hippodrome, which is this today. This is what's left. And he sat there and he loved the Olympics. So he sat there and goes, we ought to bring the Olympics to Israel. In order to bring the Olympics to Israel, the problem was no one wanted to go to Israel. They're like, you don't really have anything. Like, Olympics are always in Rome and all this stuff. Or Greece and that thing. And he goes, you know what? In order to get people to come to some sort of sporting event... I will now give second and third place medals. Welcome to the silver and bronze medals. Thank you, Herod. In order to get any competition to come. And then the Olympics said, well, that's a good idea. 
Herod, we see what you did. We will now have gold, silver, and bronze as well. How did Herod get fresh water to that swimming pool when it's right on the, on the Mediterranean Sea? An incredible aqueduct system that ran for six and a half miles that he built. Not only that, how do you build something that is allowed to tr a trickle down fresh water into a swimming pool? Every one-tenth of a mile, this dropped one inch. Mathematically, I told you he was strategic. Mathematically, he knew how to collect fresh water and get it down exactly to empty in that freshwater swimming pool. The port city. Here's what is still today. You can actually see it. If you're into scuba diving, you can go and go scuba diving the entire ancient port city. But here as it exists today, this is what you can see now. But in Herod's world, it was as big as the red. Because you can see the dark. That is all underwater now, part of his port city. They just found a treasure trove of gold a couple of years ago by scuba divers. Just scuba. See, if you want to go, it's really cool. You should do it. Uh, by just finding. I mean, you can't keep it. You got to turn it into the Israel antiquity, so it's not yours, but you get to say you found it. So you get to scuba dive all that and understand, wow, massive, massive. Here's the last thing, Herodium. Do you see Herod's name anywhere? So not only is he brown-nosing to the Roman Empire, he's like, well, I'm about myself too. So this is the mountain of paradise. They say in Herodium, 90% of Herod's time was spent here. And here it is, right here. You know why Herod picked this spot? <laughs> Remember I said the Parthians were after Herod when he fled Rome? Antigonus chased him. They got to a spot eight miles south of Jerusalem when his mom's chariot flipped. And he thought everything was going to end right there. No wonder why Herod chose this spot. My life didn't end. I'm ruling now. And I'm going to build my palace right where that happened. Here is Herodium. It's known as like, it looks like a volcano in the middle of nowhere. It's a massive mountain. He had his servants. He said, I want it eight miles where my mom's chariot flipped, where I fought Antigonus and fled for my life. And his servant says, Herod, there's no hill here. And Herod says, I don't care, get it done. They moved a mountain that was over here to here, Herodium. And biblical scholars believe when Jesus says to his disciples, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to go throw itself in the sea, they would have known. Maybe perhaps this Herodium was in eyesight of Jesus in his teaching. They would have understood Herod moved this mountain. And our faith can move mountains as well, if some human can move a mountain. And so this is Herodium. This is where 90% of his time was spent. This was his baby project. And this was massive too. It's, it, it, literally, you can see the, the desert there. Uh, you can actually see some of the Dead Sea. I mean, it is out in the middle of nowhere where it's flat. Then all of a sudden this volcano structure. It is so beautiful that... Um, Oh, by the way, you know what this is? Ah, you are smart, aren't you? 
You know Herod loves swimming pool. For whatever reason, Herod loves swimming pools. That's a swimming pool, right? Here's an artist rendition of this entire thing of what it would have looked like. So every servant's homes would have been down here and around, of course, the swimming pool. His palace was up there, eight miles south of Jerusalem. And that's where he, here's, let me zoom in. I'm going to zoom in on this swimming pool because it's really impressive. He had a gazebo, which is still there today. Not the whole structure, but you can see the base of it. Guess where after our parties began? King Herod. Oh, if the swimming, you can't swim? Don't worry, I've got boats to take you to the gazebo for the after our, after our party. The dude knew what he was doing. He was an incredible builder. Here's a faraway shot from it that you could see. You could see it just looks like this volcano structure, but it is so incredibly beautiful. Not too long ago, about roughly 10 to 12 years ago, they actually found um, a mausoleum when they were doing more excavating. They found Herod's mausoleum, and they found his coffin right there in Herodium. Welcome to Christmas through Herod's eyes. The false king of the Jews that wanted to reign over the land of Israel. Here's some of my last things real quick before we go into the story. Herod was known for 10 wives. I didn't say he was ethically or morally straight. <laughs> 10 wives. He did have a favorite, Merriman. Uh, he had 15 kids. 10 were boys. Uh, he was a very, very paranoid man. You would actually say he was insanely paranoid. And he was brutal and ruthless. In fact, um, he had his favorite wife, Merriman, and uh, he went away on two long trips. Going away on two long trips, he told his servants, if I don't return, please kill my wife, because I can't stand the thought of her being with another man. He gets back from his second long trip, and he's paranoid that his favorite wife, Merriman, did something. So he had her killed. In the process of that, I told you he was paranoid and insane. He would walk around his, his Herodium, his, de his fortress there that he built for himself, calling his wife, Merimim, Merimim. And when she did not come, because he had her killed, he would send for his servants to say, servants, go find my wife. They know, this isn't, she's not here. So they did. They would search. They come back with the news that we can't find your wife. And Herod would torture his servants for not bringing back his dead wife that he had executed. He was afraid that two of his sons were going to rise up early at the end of his life and take over the throne. He had his two sons killed. In fact, Merimam had a brother who was a priest, and she begged him, hey, make him high priest. So Herod also had a palace in Jericho. Guess what he had in Jericho? A swimming pool, right? He elevated Merimam so his brother-in-law... He elevated him to high priest, and then he started kind of regretting and not liking his brother-in-law. So in order to get rid of his brother-in-law, what a great way to fake and make it look like an accidental drowning. He drowned his brother-in-law, the high priest, in his pool in Jericho, and it looked accidental. This is the man that is sitting as king of the Jews when Jesus is born. In fact, here's what Caesar Augustus says about Herod the Great. He says, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. This man's evil. This man is utterly 
evil. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, as we, you and I begin the Christmas narrative, we read, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. This isn't good. In 4 BC, King Herod finally dies. King Herod dies in 4 BC. You know what that means, right? Jesus was not born in zero. I know I just blew some of your minds right now. It's impossible. If King Herod is ruling at the time of Jesus' birth, he dies in 4 BC, it is not zero. Most biblical scholars will say Jesus was born in 5 or 6 BC. I know, deal with your calendar issues another day. I'm just saying. The Herod, this is the only time Herod, King Herod, the Herod the Great is mentioned. You're like, wait a minute. I thought there were Herods on the throne at the, during the time of ministry of Jesus. You're right. After Herod dies in 4 BC, Herod divides his land to three sons. You had Herod Antipas that controlled the west part of the Sea of Galilee and then the east side of the Jordan River. You have Herod Archelaus. This is the Herod that Jesus stands in front of during his trial. This is Herod the Great's son. And then you have Philip the Tetrarch. Uh, Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi. See what his son did? Apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, me. Caesarea Philippi. So he names the city after himself up there. And this is what it looks like now when Jesus begins his ministry. The Herods that are ruling are Herod the Great's sons, not King Herod in the, in the Christmas narrative. Now that we know a little bit about King Herod, let's try to jump in to the rest of Matthew chapter 2. And we'll understand what Christmas through King Herod's eyes might have been like. Please listen to Pam. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Herod truly want to go and worship the king of the Jews? No. 
says, King Herod was disturbed at the news that the king of the Jews had been born. Of course he would. He thinks he's king of the Jews. Christmas through his eyes was a disturbance to his own kingdom. But to the Magi from the east, they were delighted. Scripture says they're overjoyed because the king of the Jews had finally come. Let me ask you a question. Are you disturbed that the king of the Jews, his name is Jesus, has been born? Or are you delighted that the Savior has been born? No wonder why in verse 16 it says, And he, King Herod, gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. No wonder why. The guy killed his own wife. The guy killed his brother-in-law and his own sons who threatened him. Makes sense. Because the king of the Jews, the true king of the Jews was coming and it was a threat to his own kingdom. And of course I'm going to go and slaughter him. So I remain king. Christmas through the eyes of King Herod was not great. It was a disturbance. And you know what's insane about all this? Here's Herodium, eight miles south of Jerusalem. It's only three and a half miles southeast of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Here is the shot on top of Herodium looking at Bethlehem. 90% of the time of King Herod was on that hill looking at Bethlehem going, wow, wow. The Magi come and says, it's there. This king, I'm the king. Not this city that means nothing. Look at the mountain I built. And when the Magi come, King Herod would have had an eyesight into Bethlehem. Let me ask you again, are you disturbed or delighted? You'll be disturbed when you want to do and build your own kingdom. But you'll be delighted when you want to surrender to his kingdom. Because Jesus' own words, the true king of the Jews would say this, whoever wants to be my Jesus, my disciple, must deny themselves, something King Herod did not do. You want to be my disciple, take up their cross. King Herod forced everyone else to the cross, but not himself. And then Jesus says, now you can follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? Look at what King Herod did. It was all mine. I can build it, do whatever I want. Yet you forfeit your soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? King Herod? Build my kingdom. Be about me. And I'm disturbed about the news of Jesus. But surrender to his kingdom. Bow down and worship him. You'll be delighted and overjoyed. You know what's interesting about these two kingdoms at war right in this story? King's Herod kingdom would eventually be squashed. But 2,000 years later, we are still in the kingdom of God. 
So I want you to reflect on this. Does your self reign or does the spirit reign? Herod's self reigned. Everything was about him. And I know sometimes it's really difficult to not make life about us and what we want to do. But in the kingdom of God, we deny ourselves. We take up the instrument of death daily. We allow the flesh to die within to follow after Jesus and say, Spirit, reign in me, not myself, not flesh. Because if you allow flesh and the self, you will be disturbed. But if you allow the spirit to reign, you will be delighted. So I'm going to ask you a question, who's your king? Who's your king? Herod was his king. And it fell miserably for him. This is the only posture for Christmas. It's surrender to the true king of kings and lord of lords. It's saying, God, get my flesh out of the way. Get my selfish desires out of the way. You are the king of kings and lord of lords. And I'm telling you, when we have a posture of surrender, you're going to be overjoyed. When the spirit takes control, it's a walk you'll never regret walking. And you'll realize Christmas, it's a beautiful story, but Christmas also waged a spiritual battle. When the devil sits there and goes, "Uh uh-oh, the one that will reconcile all of it has now come. So I'm going to ask you, who's your king? I'm going to ask you to stand in this moment, and I just want to, I want to pray over you, and the team's going to close us in a song. But would you just bow your, bow your head and close your eyes. Just truly ask right now on your heart, who's sitting on the, who is the king of your heart? Is it yourself and your flesh? Or is Jesus and the Holy Spirit sitting on the throne of your heart right now? Sit and reflect on that for a moment. May our hearts sing no other name but the name above all names, and his name is Jesus. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus in this moment, now's the time. Let him be king. So you aren't disturbed by the news of Jesus. You can be overjoyed and delighted in the news of Jesus. So if you just say this prayer quietly to yourself, just say, Heavenly Father, I need you. I need you to be king of my life. I'm sorry for turning my back against you. And now I'm running into your arms. Please forgive me of my sins. I surrender my life to you. I put my faith and trust into you this morning. Fill me with your spirit. Clothe me in righteousness.
And may I walk after you, Jesus, the rest of my life. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray.